If you got a Bible, open to Ruth chapter one. We started this series in Ruth last week and we're gonna continue moving forward as we plow through it this week. Uh, Ruth chapter one, verses six to 22 is a text that we're gonna land in this morning. Before we read it together, I wanna catch you up if you missed last week on where we are. Last week we saw that whenever the book of Ruth opens, we saw that it was set in the days of the judges. And we said last week that the days of the judges were a very dark and depraved period of Israel's history. And listen, if you made a movie out of the book of the judges, to do it justice, it would be rated NC-17, all right? That's the kind of stuff going on in the days of the judges. It was a time in which the people of God did not acknowledge the rule of God in their lives. And we said last week they found God to be useful for some things, but determined him to be useless for others in their lives. And so they would go to God for some things and run to other gods for others in their lives. We saw last week as well that choices do have consequences as one family seeks to escape a famine that God had brought upon the land that had finally prowled its way to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And in the house of bread, there was no bread. And so one family who was led by a man whose name was my God as king did not act much like his God was king and turn and repent, but he ran next door looking for rations in the fields of Moab. And what this family finds is they leave emptiness in the fields of Bethlehem to find fullness in the fields of Moab. They discover there is an emptiness much deeper than a lack of crops in the fields because Elimelech dies, Naomi's husband passes. Her two sons who took Moabite wives, they die and they're all buried in a foreign land. And Naomi at the end of verse five finds herself bereft and broken and absolutely barren with no prospects or hope for a future. And that's where she finds herself at the end of the text that we looked at last week. But we also saw last week that even in the midst of her mess, some of the mess created by choices that were made for her and some of the mess created by the choices that she made. But even in the midst of her mess, God had not forgotten about her. He had not abandoned her. But she receives word that God had visited his people in Bethlehem. Food was back in the fields and their stomachs were once again full. And that was good news. God's compassion showed up in her life. So that leaves us uh, where we are, brings us to where we are today as we read verses 6 to 22 together. If you don't have a copy of it sitting in front of you, you can follow along on the screen behind me as we read. Picks up in verse six saying, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Some of you are offended by that. I'm sorry. I'm too old to have a husband, she says. And even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, 
For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, to, said, and, and the women said is, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty." Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. In Psalm 42, verse three, the psalmist writes these words. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. I don't know if you've ever felt that before. I don't know if you've ever asked your question as you look in the mirror yourself, where is God? See, some of us have had enough life behind us, right, in the rearview mirror to know what this experience is like. To where agony and anguish and you've been pummeled by difficulty and destruction and suffering and sorrow enough. It's been like body blow after body blow, like uppercut, cross, right? You're down on the mat, they're doing a standing 10 count and you're just lying there and you're where is saying, where is God? Emotionally, there's a sense of anguish in your life and it, even there's, there's a, such a high degree of anguish at times in our lives where our appetite diminishes. Have you experienced that before? Some of you have. You know what I'm talking about, where you're, you're not even hungry anymore. You can't even eat anything. You can't even imagine the thought of food going into your mouth and into your belly because your appetite is diminished and nearly gone. So that the only thing that's filling your belly are your saline, saturated tears as they roll down your cheeks. And the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. Where is God? They are taunting me. People around me are taunting me, asking me, where is your God? And some of us have been there before, and that's exactly where Naomi is in this moment. She's experienced heartache after heartache after heartache. She says at the end of chapter one that she left Bethlehem full with a husband and two sons with prospects, hope for the future, and whenever she arrived in Moab and made the return trip home, she's coming back empty without a husband, without two sons, without any grandchildren, with no prospects for hope and no prospects for a future. This is exactly where Naomi is. Her tears have been her food day and night. And perhaps there are those around her who are even asking, where is your God? His hand is stretched out against you. He has afflicted you. That's where she is. And this morning, I want us to, 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 to consider something from Naomi's experience in our own lives. 
And I got one point for you, right? And, and, and one point only, I promise, right? I got one point. We're going to flesh it out in several ways, but I got one big point, and it's this, right? I, I'm, I'm trying to learn, trying to grow, okay? Because we're going to come back to this text next week because there's more than one point here. Um, <laughs> but, but I got one for you this morning, and it's this, is that you and I need to recognize the power of past pain to blind us to God's grace in the present, There are times in which grief from our past blinds us to grace in the present. Listen, I don't know about you and your experience, but sometimes grief over past pain, it tends to paralyze us. Have you ever had that happen to you in your life where it just numbs you out? Some of us kind of like the Irish rock band U2, we find ourselves to be stuck in a moment, right? We just can't get out of it. We don't know how to move forward. We don't know how to go on. Everything in our life continues to remind us as it replays and recycles over and over and over again in our mind. And that past grief blinds us. It's like, like shields over our eyes that prohibit us from seeing the very grace of God in our presence, standing right in our midst in front of our face. And this is where Naomi is. Her past grief was blinding her to God's grace in the present in her life. So let's look at her grief first and let's see the grace of God standing in front of her. First of all, her grief. You can imagine, based on everything that Naomi has gone through and everything that she has experienced, that grief would be a natural emotion for her to feel with the loss of husband, eldest son, youngest son. Right? They're having no prospects for hope and no prospects for a future. And so on the way back to Bethlehem, she turns to her daughters-in-law and she says, listen, ladies, go, go back home to your mother's house. Go back home where you have prospects. Go back home where you can have a future. Go back home where you can find a sense of stability and security. Go back home where you could potentially find another husband. Go into your mother's house so they can give you away again to another husband for whom you can bear children and you could have a family and you can have a future. This is what Naomi says to them in verses eight and nine. She says, I want you to find rest in your mother's home. And that word rest isn't just physical rest. Like, I want you to go take a nap at mom's house, right, after Thanksgiving dinner. What she's saying is this, I want you to find a sense of normalcy and security and provision because if you come with me, all you're signing up for is barrenness and brokenness the same and bitterness the same as is present in my life right now. She sees she has nothing to offer. She has no hope and no future for these young ladies. So she says, go back home. I cannot provide for you. And I pray that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of covenant, would give you rest there in the house eventually of your future husband. And so the ladies there at the end of that, that section, they embrace and they lift up their voices and they weep, right? I want you to just imagine the humanity of this moment, and feel with these three ladies on the road back to Judea. See, the relationship between these three ladies, it's been galvanized by suffering, sorrow, and pain, and sadness. See, each of them understands what it is to lose a husband. Each of them understands what it is to, be, to feel a, a sense of barrenness. Each of them understands what it is to have no hope in a culture in which everything, everything rode on the family. And they have none. Each of these three ladies understand that. But listen, they understand that not from isolated experiences in their life. 
It wasn't like Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, one lost their husband you know, over here, one lost their husband over here, one lost their husband over here on this part of town, and then they all gathered somewhere for a grief recovery seminar, right? And then they sat in the grief recovery seminar, they got all the content, and they're working through their issues, and then they start meeting for coffee in the coffee shop next door to kind of continue to hash these things out and encourage one another, and as they share more and more about life over the course of those days, they get bound together in relationship to where they begin to just weep with and for each other. That's not how it happened. These ladies didn't come from isolated instances. What happened was their pain, their sorrow, their sadness, and their grief, they experienced together. And now Naomi's saying, go home. I have nothing to offer you. Like if if we were to write these words today, right, you guys know what an ugly cry is? That's what's going on on the side of the road with these three ladies, right? It's not like, I'm going to miss you. It's like face contorted, right? Makeup running everywhere on their knees, barreled, barreled over with just heaves coming from their gut out of sadness. And so the ladies turned to Naomi and they said, no. We will return with you to your people. And I want you to pick up on the evidences of Naomi's grief here because I want you to listen to what she says. In verses 10 and following, Naomi responds, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Now let's stop right there. There are two words that the author of Ruth could have used here when he referenced the word womb for Naomi. The one that actually referred to a woman's womb. That's enough description. The other one referred to intestines, guts, or bowels. And that's the word on Naomi's lips here. This is what she says to her daughters-in-law. Listen, ladies, I don't have any children growing in my colon to give to you. I don't have any of it in my large intestine or my small intestine. I don't have anything in my gut to offer to you. So go back home. This is, you coming with me is hopeless. Turn back. And even if I did, even if I did have a prospect for a husband tonight and we were to get married and we conceived on the wedding night and things moved forward and I gave birth to sons nine, year, nine months from now, not, that'd be a long pregnancy, wouldn't it? Nine months from now, even if all that transpired, would you then wait 15 or 17 years for them to, for these young boys to grow into young men and be of marital age? Then you would probably have aged out of your childbearing years as well. If you, if you stay with me, I have nothing to offer you. That's a really good evangelistic strategy, isn't it? And so at the end of that rendition of her argument, as she escalates it upwards, even through her sarcasm, Orpah says, you know what? You're right. She kisses her mother-in-law. She returns home. And Ruth, Ruth of Tech says she clung to her. She clung to her. And then she turns to Ruth and says, Ruth, listen, follow her lead. Follow her example. Go back home. And that's where Ruth runs into this beautiful and poetic speech of saying, do not entreat me to turn back from you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I will be buried. Should the Lord do X, Y, and Z to me if I should, if anything but death should part me from you. 
And listen, here's another picture of, of Naomi's grief because when Ruth runs down all of this declaration of her allegiance, love, loyalty, and affection for Naomi and says, Naomi, I'm gonna ride with you until you die. And even when you die, I'm gonna be committed to your family line. I'm not going back to Moab. If we get home in a week and you pass, then I'm not going back to Moab. I'm gonna remain there with your people and your God is my God. And if you can imagine this being a movie, a scene in a movie, like the cameras panned in tight on the two ladies as Ruth, perhaps through tear-stained cheeks, delivers this impassioned speech and Naomi is standing there and when Ruth shuts her mouth, Naomi looks at her with a blank stare, turns and picks up her bag and just walks off. She's like, I'm not gonna get through to her, so if you wanna come to me to barrenness, brokenness and, and, and bereftment, come on, all right. Like she just resigns herself to it. And then she returns home. And whenever she comes into the city, the women of the city come out and meet her to greet her. And they say, is this, is, is that Naomi? Now I can imagine the years of pain had probably done something to her physical features. As she returns back and she's not the woman that she was when she left. And as she walks in through the city, the women greet her and say, is this Naomi? And she responds by, with these words. She says, no, no, hold up. That's not my name anymore. I done gone change my name, right? <laughs> my name is not Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. Like sweetie pie. But call me Mara, which means Bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. His hand has gone out against me to cause calamity. In fact, one of the words Mara is related to in the Hebrew is the word myrrh, which is an embalming element. In other words, I'm as, I'm as good as dead. And what Naomi's grief over her past experiences was blinding her to was the grace of God in the present. And I wanna show you two examples of that in the text. And then we're gonna press some of this into life. And the first one is this, it's Ruth. When Naomi comes back into the town and the ladies greet her and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because God's dealt bitterly with me. She says, I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. She says, I went out with a husband. I went out with two sons. I went out with prospects. I went out with hope. I went out with joy. But God brought me back broken and embittered. He brought me back empty. I left empty fields and found full fields. And I'm now leaving full fields with an empty home. I left with a, with a full home, found full fields. There experienced an empty home. I'm coming back now. Empty. Absolutely empty and as good as dead. But is she? In the text, in verse, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, in fact, verse 14, it says this, that when Orpah returns back to her mother-in-law, that Ruth, she clung to her. Now that word clung is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. It's used in Genesis chapter two whenever it says, therefore, a man should leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two will become one. They're no longer two, but one. There's a cleaving that takes place there in a marital covenant. 
And whenever Ruth puts those words onto her, or the narrator puts those words into Ruth's action, that she clung to her mother-in-law. This is what he's saying, is that she is demonstrating the same degree of loyalty and love and allegiance and affection necessary for a covenant marriage. That she's pledging herself, giving herself to Naomi. Say, I'm gonna ride, with, I'm gonna ride this thing out with you. But listen, I want you to consider something that she's, she's not only saying, she's not only saying that she's clinging to her with the same kind of love and that you would cling to a husband or a wife, but with a greater one. Listen, I've done a lot of weddings in my day, all right? Um, I did singles ministry for a really long time, did a lot of weddings in that. I've done a lot of weddings in my day and it's part of the marriage covenant when the vows are exchanged and husbands and wives or brides and grooms come to the altar and all their friends and family are gathered there and you run down all the vows with them and at the end of the vows, it's until death do us what? Part. Until death do us part. In other words, like we're gonna ride this thing together until one of us is in the ground and when one of us is in the ground, that is the only thing that will separate us. But listen to what Ruth says to Naomi. Because we read verse 16 a lot of weddings, don't we? Right? Do not entreat me to turn back from you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people, your God, my God. We're gonna roll this thing together. But then you get to verse 17. We don't read this one in marriage ceremonies. And here's why. Because it says, and where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, I will be buried. In other words, Ruth is saying, I will be committed to your family line, Naomi, even once you're gone. Even so that your family line is not eradicated or erased from history. So even once you're off the scene, this commitment stands posthumously. It's gonna continue on through the future no matter what happens to you, Naomi. And I'll be buried with your people because they're mine now. And, and, and Ruth is standing in front of Naomi declaring these things to her and Naomi says, all right, <laughs> She can't see the grace of God standing in front of her face. Secondly, secondly, that's not a word. Second of all, right, when she returns back to Bethlehem and she walks into the town, to get to the town, she's gotta walk through the fields and as she walks through the fields, the narrator tells us that when they arrive back in Bethlehem, what was going on? Were there empty fields once again? Was it all just barren? Was the ground like iron and the sky like bronze? Like we saw last week in Deuteronomy 28? That's not what's going on, is it? No, the stalks of grain have risen. They came back at harvest time. It just so happened right, by God's providence to be walking through the fields at harvest time and the stalks of grain, the heads are full with grain, ready to be, had the sickle put to them and brought to the threshing floor and, 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 and threshed out. And so as she's walking back, having found emptiness in Moab, she's walking back into fullness in Bethlehem, but she can't see it. She can't see it because her past grief has blinded her to God's present grace. Is that you? I know it's me at times. So in the rest of the time that we have together this morning, here's what I want us to, to look at. I want us to look at 
some, some indicators of, 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 of potent, that could potentially be indicators, things that could potentially be indicators of this going on, this reality operating in your life right now. And then I want to give you some, 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 some things to look for to move past your past grief and live in God's present grace. So what are the indicators? Like, I don't know if you, most of you drive a car, you don't ride horses around, um, but if, if you've got a vehicle that sits in your driveway or in your garage, on that dashboard, right, there's all kind of gauges, and on those gauges, there's all kind of lights. Um, I, I know enough about vehicles to know when the, when the dashboard lights up like a Christmas tree, you probably need to take it somewhere and have it seen about, right? Um, so there are certain warning lights on the dashboard of our cars that show us something's going wrong under the hood. And listen, there are indicators in our lives that do the same. I want to give you several of them this morning as you think about whether or not your past grief has blinded you from God's present grace in your life. First of all, if, if this is going on in your life, then you typically settle into a place where you believe that nothing will ever change. That nothing will ever get better. That there will be no progress. That there will be no, that, that, that you will never reach the top of the hill, but that you will always live in the valley. See, if, if your past grief has blinded you to present grace, then you think nothing will ever change. You look back on your past, and then you look forward to your future. And here's what you think to yourself is that you cannot see a different narrative being written through the windshield than you see in the rearview mirror. You can't see a different story unfolding in your future at all. You see no hope, you see no prospects in the same way that Naomi saw it. So your past pain ultimately paralyzes you from seeing any further work of God moving forward in your life, of any of his grace evident to you in the present. And listen, for some of you this happens in your marriages. It happens in your marriages. It's happened in mine in the past. It happens at times whenever, you know, when you've been married to somebody long enough and you've seen patterns of behavior in their life long enough, then you begin to believe things will never change. They will never grow. They will never progress. They will never mature in Christ's likeness. And so what happens is whenever your spouse begins to take initiative to want to lead in a particular direction, you shut it down point blank because of all the past grief and pain that you've experienced from their failures previously or ways they've let you down previously. And so you, you just shut it off because you think they will never change. Or you, 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 you pull up roots from a church and you move to another one because you think that church is never gonna change. Or you bounce from life group to life group because you think that group is never gonna change. Or you just circulate in relationships because you think that person's never gonna change. And sometimes some of you have given up on yourselves because you think you're never gonna change. Because some of you have been so wounded and marred by past sin, either that you've committed or it's been committed against you that you think there's no hope for a better future. Your past grief is blinding you to present grace. One of the second dashboard lights in your life is this, is that every conversation that you have ultimately ends up there. It ultimately ends up unearthing all the past pain, all the past grief, all the past sorrow and sadness, all of your suffering, right? You just keep shoveling it up and every, somehow, right, 
Somehow, there's a thread in every conversation that leads back to that point and that place and those people in your life. And so you cycle back over it again and again and again and again. And like a scratched disc, some of you might remember CDs. You might remember CDs. Right, you put it in the CD player and it's got a little scratch on it. It just keeps going. It keeps running back to that same point over and over and over and over and over again. Or like a corrupted file that just can't like, move forward. It just catches time after time after time. And all of your past grief and all of your past sorrow is blinding you to God's present grace in your life and you cycle through it over and over in every relationship, every situation, every new setting, right? You're getting to know new friends. You sit down at the table with them, second, second dinner conversation in, you're just like, Bleh. Right? All of your past grief comes to the table. Why? Because there's an embitteredness about it that has never been addressed. You've never opened it up for God to heal so that you can move forward. Every conversation ends up there. Third, it shades every other area of your life. It shades every other area of your life. And so maybe you look back on past grief and past pain, maybe from choices that you've made choices that were made for you, ways that you sinned or ways that you were sinned against and you look back on those things and they become the lenses through which you view every other aspect of your life. It begins to shade everything about you. So you failed in one business so you must be a failure, right? Or you quit one enterprise and so you must be a quitter, right? Other people might label you that way. You might label yourself that way as you look in the mirror, and so you begin to assign names to yourself based upon your past situations, based upon your past circumstances and all the grief that you've walked through in life. It's exactly what Naomi does. When she comes back home, she says, don't call me by my birth name, right? I done gone got conscious, right? I'm gonna change my name, right? I'm on this higher level now. Call me Mara because that's who I am. It begins to change your identity and how you see yourself. Past grief has the power to blind you to present grace. And then fourthly and finally, you begin to attribute your emptiness to God and your fullness to yourself. Look at what she says in the text. She says, I went away full. She didn't say the Lord sent me away full. Or I went away with the fullness of the Lord with a husband and two sons ready for prospects, hope, future, everything lying before me. She says, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. And some of us in our lives, whenever we begin to recycle our past grief over and over and over and over again, it blinds us to present grace and we do so by saying everything that I've succeeded in my life, <laughs> man, I was pretty good, right? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough and doggone it, people just really like me. I know how to win friends and influence people, right? I went to a Tony Robbins seminar. He taught me how to do everything I needed to know. But everything bad that happens in my life, God's hand is against me. Not God's hand has raised me and blessed me and given me opportunity and provided with me skills and resources and put people around me to help me thrive and succeed. It's I. But whenever things fall flat on their face, it's God. God. 
These are all dashboard lights, all indicators in your life that perhaps your past grief is blinding you to God's present grace. So as we close this morning, here's what I wanna offer up to you. I wanna offer up to you four things about how you can begin to look beyond your past grief and begin to see God's present grace in your life. No matter where you're coming from, where you are now, and where you, where you think God might be taking you into the future, and it's, 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 it's real simple, right? There's no complex algorithm or formula. It's very simple. Here's what you and I both need to learn to do. We need to learn to look for grace in the present. We need to learn to look for it. We need to learn to seek it out. We need to learn to search for it, to look for grace in the present. And it, 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 look, you look for it in the easy, easy things and, and, and easy times and the hard times. You look for it in small ways and big ways. First of all, in easy things or easy times. You look for it in easy times because in easy, like, don't we all benefit at times from just God giving us a season of rest, right? We're not fighting a disease, We're not battling in relational conflict. We're not fighting in the midst of challenges. Like our work is going, maybe work's going well, maybe family's going well, things are going well for us. And in those moments, what we have a tendency to do is just kind of set the cruise control button and just kind of ride that thing out as opposed to looking for God's grace in those moments and returning it with gratitude. God, thank you for a season of rest in my life. Even in those moments in which things tend, like the waters tend to be calm, are you seeing that as a gift of God's grace in your life? Are you looking at it as such? Or are you saying, you know what, I'm gonna look back and God's just waiting to zap me again. (laughs) Or are you looking for grace in the present, even when things tend to be calm and easy, saying, God, thank you for a season of rest. But not only in the easy things, but also in the hard ones. Because God's grace comes to you, not only in the easy times, but also in the hard times. Right? Because in the easy times, God is giving us rest. In the hard times, like James says, that we should consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And if you let it have its work in your life, it's gonna bring you to be a person that you weren't before because it's gonna form character within you. So that in the hard times, what God is doing, you look for grace in those times as he's chiseling away your self-autonomy and your self-rule. Your tendency to say, in in all the things I've accomplished, God, that was me. And all the things that went poorly, God, that was you because you blocked the way. He's chiseling away at that. And listen, I just wanna be real transparent with you this morning. That's what was going on in my life for the duration of 2016, as God began to chisel away at my own self-autonomy, my own self-rule, of my own pride. And listen, I want you to know that I wouldn't trade that season for anything. Because during that season, God began to uproot some things in my life that I didn't even know were growing. And sometimes in the hard times, he begins to do the same in you. You begins to uproot things in your life you didn't even know were growing and so you look for grace in those moments as God brings some of that to the surface. So in the easy times and the hard times but also in the small things, we have a tendency to want to see big, spectacular pyrotechnics, right? And that's the grace of God instead of in the small things. I'll give you two examples over the course of the last couple of weeks and one was just last night as I laid down with my six-year-old and put her to bed 
We laid there and we were talking about the weekend, our soccer game and our trip to the Arboretum on Friday. My parents were in town and we enjoyed some time with them. And so we were talking about the weekend and she said, Daddy, what's tomorrow? I said, it's Sunday. And she goes, yes. And I said, why are you excited? She says, because we get to go to church. And I said, why do you want to go to church? She said, because we get to learn about Jesus and about the Bible and we get lessons and they read the Bible to us. And I remember lying there next to her in that moment just thinking, man, that, that, is, that is God's grace. And it didn't happen in a big, miraculous, pyrotechnic kind of way. It happened in a really small conversation with my six-year-old daughter who at times can vacillate between what she enjoys the most as, as every second on the clock ticks away. But in that moment, it's God's grace to know that in these classrooms back here that there are adults who love our children and they're opening the Bible and teaching it to them week after week after week after week. And seeds are planted in these classrooms and hopefully continue to be watered and planted in your home that God might one day bring that to a harvest. And there's, there's some pyrotechnics, right? When we get to fill up a horse, horse truck, horse, Sorry about that. A horse trough, and we get to baptize people. Those are the pyrotechnics of the kingdom. But sometimes the precursors of those are just some very small things. I, I, another way that's happened, of course, of, uh, God's grace to the families of Redeemer and to their kids, but also God's grace to the marriages of this church. Several weeks ago, I, we, Duncan and I, Duncan brought this idea to me about maybe trying to pilot re-engage, which is a marriage ministry. And re-engage is designed for, for couples who neither just need like a little tune-up, right? Uh, you just need an oil change, right? Maybe need some spark plugs changed or a complete overhaul, right? All across those ends of the spectrum, either your marriage is about to fall apart or you just need someone to help you facilitate toward continued growth in your marriage, right? It's designed to kind of retool it or resurrect it. So we started kicking around this idea of, of piloting it here, and we were like, I don't, I don't, everywhere else I've seen it, it's been a very big production with 80, 90, 100 couples in the room at a time whenever they start in large group and then they funnel into smaller groups of discussion and curriculum. And so I just thought, man, how scalable is that here in our context, and so I called a friend of mine who had, been, who, who had led that ministry in a very large context before, and I said, hey, let me pick your brain about how, what's the irreducible minimum of this program that we could bring it down to in a, in a small church planting kind of context. And so he started sharing with me some things. He said, we're actually about to do it here, and he's planting a church right now as well in Rockwall. And he said, but we don't have a facility to host it in, but we got facilitators. And so I said, well, we have a facility. If you have facilitators... Right? Why don't we partner together to do that? And so you guys can have couples from your church go through it. We can have couples from our church go through it. And so couples who need to go through it right now, based on where their marriages are, are couples who say, you know what? God's given me a passion and a vision to serve families and help marriages be strong and healthy going forward into the future here at Redeemer. Like, can we offer it to both of those? Folks who could see themselves leading it one day or have a desire to help lead in it here at Redeemer and folks who go, you know what? I just need a lifeline right now. And so he went back and talked to some of his folks. I went back and talked to some of our folks and we came back together and we said, let's, let's give it a shot. 
So Monday night, starting not this Monday, but next Monday, here in this building, we're gonna host Reengage. There'll be some couples from another church and couples from our church who are gonna be working through that curriculum together and helping to grow their marriages. You know what? That's, again, that's not pyrotechnics. It's not a big conference that we're gonna host. It's just small groups of men and women who are sitting together to get transparent and real about where the state of their marriage is and what God wants to do in them. And a, just a divine conversation that came at the right moment both for them and for us. Small things. But then you also look for grace in the big things. You look for it in big things. And we're gonna land the plane with this this morning, but I want you to see this in Naomi's life. In verse 14, the text says that while Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Ruth clung to her. She kissed her goodbye and Ruth clung to her. She held fast to her. And here's what, here's what you, so we mentioned earlier, that was the same word, cleave, husbands, leaving, mother and father, cleaving their wives, but I want you to know that word shows up elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. And it shows up frequently in the book of Deuteronomy. And one place that it shows up in the book of Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. It's Moses' farewell sermon to the people before he dies, because he wasn't gonna see the land, he wasn't gonna set foot in it, and God was gonna take the people under Joshua over into the land to drive out the other nations and occupy the land of promise. So Moses is given his best last shot at this deal, right? Like he's preaching his heart out in front of these people, giving them the law again. God's commandments again. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. You shall hold fast to him. Same Hebrew word, under, hold fast to him as uh, as is under Ruth clung to her mother-in-law as is under husbands cleaving to their wives. So Ruth has a commitment to Naomi that is deeper even than covenant marriage, because not until death do us part, it's even when death parts us. I'm gonna still show loyalty and faithfulness to your family line. But I want you to see this beautiful picture here. You know, I, th- th- this, this gets me excited. I wasn't excited until now, but this gets me excited. Because listen, what the people of God were intended to do as they came into the land of promise was to cling to their God, to hold fast to their God. And in the period of the judges we saw last week, they did anything but that. They ran from him. You're useful for some things, God, but useless for others. And so we're gonna go to the Baals and to the gods of the other nations to find our satisfaction and provision. When we need help driving enemies out, we'll come back to you. But whenever we want agriculture and success and we want fertility and we want provision, we're gonna go looking for it elsewhere. They refused to cling to their God and so did Elimelech and Naomi. As they left God's land of promise and his covenant people and they went outside of that looking to be filled They went outside of his parameters looking to be filled. They refused to cling to Yahweh, but look at this. Yahweh was clinging to her. He was clinging, even when she, because you're like, well, that was his fault, right? He led him away, but listen, when he died and she had two sons, she could have very well moved her family back to Bethlehem. But yet she stays in Moab. So it would be through choices that were made for her or choices of her own. She failed to cling to God, but God was faithfully clinging to her. 
And I want you to know, church, that wherever you are right now, whatever past grief you have experienced that is blinding you to present grace, and you look around and you go, you know what? (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been there before, but you got people in your life who just won't give up on you even though you've given up on yourself. And you're like, I wish they would stop (laughs) and just let me be. But God's too faithful to do that. Because in the person of Ruth, standing in front of Naomi is God's grace. God clinging to Naomi in that moment to write a story for her that would end with joy, that would end with provision and hope, that would end with God's blessing showered down on her. And we're gonna see it when we get to the end of the book. I don't wanna give it away too soon though. But that's what God was doing in the clinging of this Moabite daughter-in-law to Naomi. God himself was clinging to her. And Paul says it this way. In, in 2 Timothy, he says, even, even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And Christian, I want you to know that whatever choices you have made that may have caused you past grief in your life, that if you're a believer and the Holy Spirit has indwelled you and he's working himself out into all the areas of your life to conform you to the image of Christ and bear his fruit, that even when you are faithless, he is faithful. Even whenever you rebel, he is aiming and working and plotting to redeem and renew all the things that you and I destroy. That's what he's doing. Because his Holy Spirit has come to abide within you and he does not turn his back on you because he cannot turn his back on himself. And that is good news. It's good news for me. I don't know about you. Is your past grief blinding you to present grace? If it is, look for grace in the small things. Look for grace in the easy things. Look for it in the hard things. But look for it in the big things. Because in the gospel, God has shown that he is willing to cling to us even, even when we try to let go of him. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we're grateful for your grace that you are a God who does not let us go. That you're a God who, by his own counsel, according to your own will, God, that you have seen fit to choose us as your people. And that, God, even whenever we open our hands to let go of you, God, you do not open yours to let go of us. So may we see your grace in our lives. In those easy seasons in which we have rest, may we give you thanks. In those hard seasons in which you're chiseling away, may we give you thanks as you uproot things in our life that we didn't know were there. In the small things and just small conversations with people and in the big things of the sending of your son. 
by which you showed that you were willing to cling to us even though we, like our first parents, let go of you. Father, if there are folks in the room this morning who are wrestling with bitterness over past pain, whether it be pain from their marriage, maybe it be pain from previous church experiences, maybe it's pain from family difficulties and trials, maybe it's pain that's a result of their own choices, and maybe it's pain that's a result of choices that were made for them. Wherever they find themselves, as they look back on their past grief, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to your grace to them in the present. They would see that you are standing in front of them ready to provide that there are full fields in their future God not empty ones and that may not look like a bigger house and a nicer car and more money in our bank accounts but that looks like a heavenly home in which we are secure and stable because you have reached down and gripped us with your grace and are unwilling to let go help us to see that We pray in Jesus' name.